0: Once upon a time, when the world was filled with wonder, little creatures shared the earth with humans. And magic was a way of life. Once upon a time is now. Empire Pictures presents Troll the weirdest, the rowdiest, the most mischievous, and the scariest little creature of them all. And what he's doing is going from apartment to apartment and transforming sections of this building into different fairy worlds the hell are you the transformation is going to begin on the witch's sabbath the very same day that the potters move into their new apartment I've never seen so many guys take so long to move so little furniture. It's all your records, honey. you got to get rid of some of these records. Sometimes I wonder what I'm gonna do. Love, there ain't no... And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. A portion, not the entire trailer, but a portion of the trailer to the film Troll, a 1986, I don't know, I'm going to say classic, but that might be uh, a little strong from Empire Pictures, directed by John Carl Buchler and starring Noah uh, Hathaway, Michael Moriarty, Sonny Bono, and the film debut of Julia Louis-Dreyfus. That's going to be the topic for today on JNL Video.
1: Welcome to JNL Video, the podcast where two movie buffs get nostalgic for the good old days of renting videotapes and scary pictures on the boxes and talking about films both great and terrible. I'm James Machado, and I'm joined by my good friend, Lowry Woodall. This is the JNL Video Podcast, and we are here to talk about
0: Troll. Yes, yes, we are. <laughs> um, forgot to mention some of the taglines to this. I had a lot of interesting taglines for this. Um. Some pretty benign uh, apartment for rent, Inquire Within. <laughs>
1: it doesn't really tell you that, much about the movie.
0: It does not. It is maybe better, though, than Come Closer, another tag for this movie. Uh, worlds of magic, mystery, and menace, um, where myths and legends come to life, and worlds of wonder, worlds of mystery, worlds of fear, these worlds are the kingdom of the troll.
1: I like that last that one. one. That it's one's not better. so
0: bad. Yeah, that one That one actually gives you some sense of what you're getting yourself into at least. So, you know, a little bit better off than we were. Um, so, before we get into plot, plot synopses and all that sort of thing, um, I gotta say, you know, of the, of the handful of movies we have watched so far, I would say this is probably one of the most watchable films that we've seen so far. Um, I, not my favorite film, but maybe one of the most you know, uh, straightforward, watchable uh, films that doesn't have a lot of major plot holes to it that make you just kind of scratch your head the entire time.
1: You know, I think we're 50, 50. I would have to say, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of, lo- kind of have a place in my heart for Chud. You know, I think <laughs> that, I think that, you know, Chud, while simplistic had a clear narrative, like we knew who the people were. We knew what they wanted. We got an idea of who the Chud were. We got an idea of what they wanted. Um, and this sort of is in us on a similar level with that. Certainly, there's a massive separation between those two films, meaning Chud and Troll, and both Phantasm and the The stuff, stuff. which does not really do any of those things very well at all. Um, but Troll is a story, like, there's clearly a story that's going on here.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think well, maybe one of the things that um, I will say for Troll in comparison to Chud is. One of the things we talked about with Chud was how I think we we both sort of felt like the third act of that movie doesn't really pay off completely. You know, whether it was they ran out of money to, to do it the way they wanted to or whatever the case may be, there was some sort of, of an issue with... Um, the last act of that movie, it, it just it doesn't really pay off the way you're hoping it would. Right, and I'm I'm not saying that this paid off perfectly. I do have some some bones to pick with the choices that they made at the end of this movie, but I think for the most part, it it pays off in a more traditional horror movie style fashion.
1: You know, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I it seems like this in some ways this movie suffers from a similar pathology that the stuff does in a sense. I, I, am not sure. Maybe this is Michael Moriarty. Like I'm interested. I know we, we, I recommended watching Q, which also stars Michael Moriarty. I may have to go down the rabbit hole of watching Michael Moriarty films because here's an example of a, of a movie that like I thought was supposed to be a horror movie. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of not really a horror movie.
0: Maybe more of a fantasy picture. Yeah, I mean, else, I yeah. think
1: definitely there are moments in the in the movie. And when we talk about synopsis, we can talk a little bit about that. There are definitely parts of this movie that when I was a kid, I believe it during when I was a child, when I first tried to watch Troll, I had to turn it off because it was too scary mm-hmm. for me. And I probably, when I, that happened, I probably was about seven or eight years old. And there's definitely sequences in this movie that are maybe, I mean, maybe by today's standards, not scary because of how desensitized we are to screen violence. But there are aspects of this movie in the creatures and the transformations that are have the potential to be kind of disturbing to small kids. But as a narrative, not really a horror movie.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, think I would, I would say that the age in which you watch this movie makes a big difference. I mean, for I could sure. definitely see little kids being freaked out by the, the character work in this, you know, the, the creature work, I should say, in this. Um, you know, there, there are little parts of it that I could see being, being frightening for them, kind of in the way that um, the movie, The Witches. Uh, worked, right. you know, it, very reminiscent of that for me.
1: But also, I mean, that's, and also Roald Dahl in general, like even the writings of Roald Dahl, like not, I mean, they are kids' books, but there's a lot of things that Roald Dahl wrote in those books that are not for kids. Yeah. You don't really want kids to read. They are kind of scary, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. But I, I remember, to your point, you know, I remember being a little kid and watching The Witches for the first time and, and being, you know, pretty legitimately freaked out by, um, by some of the imagery in, in that film. And also uh, when I think about, you know, films that kind of uh, freaked me out when I was a little kid growing up, that weren't necessarily, I guess meant to be scary per se, but just sort of ended up that way to me. Um, I think about uh, return to Oz was a big one like that for me. Mm. I mean, the the little bicycle men that are in return to Oz were very freaky to me when I was the same um, with
1: the monkeys in the wizard of Oz.
0: Yeah. 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 Flying monkeys.
1: Yeah. They were scary. Yeah. You know, I think that one of the things, the reason I brought it up was one of the things that I read about this movie was that the studio, or rather the director of this movie, wanted to make a horror movie. Like basically a monster movie in which the main antagonist monster was killing people in a serial manner as like a scary horror movie. And the studio said no, 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 we want to make a PG-13 family fantasy movie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we'll re- read... And in contrast, when we're talking about the stuff where the studio wanted a horror movie, a monster movie, that, and, and the director um, wanted to make a social commentary, satirical comedy, and this sort of incongruence between what the filmmaker wanted to make and what the studio wanted to sell... When that happens and that doesn't get resolved during pre-production, once it doesn't once it you're going to principal photography, you're going into post, and you have to do reshoots to satisfy what the studio wants, like that incongruity between the maker of the movie and the studio that's financing it, if you figure that out too late, you have a situation where you make a movie that doesn't really clearly know what it wants to be.
0: Well, and and I think this is an interesting case. Because if, if we compare this to the incongruity that happens in the stuff, right, I could believe that there is somewhere a director's cut of the stuff that is longer and is more in line with what the director of the film actually urgently wanted and intended. I don't think that there is a director's cut of this film that is more horror-based. I mean, I, I think he made the concessions he made to get the movie made, and it is what it is, so... You know, in some ways, whatever the original intentionality of this movie was is kind of lost to time. Sort of like how um, Steven Spielberg supposedly originally wanted E.T. to be a really, you know, straightforward horror movie, very frightening. Um, And then kind of along the way got convinced that, uh, you know, you should go in a more family friendly direction. Like it it should be a completely different kind of film. Um, And so we don't really get to know what the. Like you know, really uh, terrifying version of ET might have looked or felt like because it only ever made it to like a draft stage and then it was scrapped. You know,
1: right. parts of ET very terrifying though.
0: I mean, if if you were afraid of Reese's Pieces, you're gonna have <laughs> a rough time with that movie. Um, Ouch. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. does. You know,
1: so well, let's um before we get we. We sort of gone on to this, we know we I feel like there's a direction we want to go here. Mm. But before we get there, we really need to talk about the the premise and the plot of yes. Troll. Like what is this movie all about?
0: So, you know, in some ways it's easier to explain, and in some ways it, it, it still takes a, a, a bit of time to really get around to what troll is. Um, the, the basic plot of Troll is that there is a family that moves into an um, apartment complex in the San Francisco Bay area, and very shortly, like literally minutes within having in moved in... Five minutes. Yes, five minutes, I think. <laughs> um, their, their daughter gets uh, kidnapped by a troll that is inhabiting the lower levels of the apartment building, and the the troll... Not only kidnaps her, but he uh, inhabits her body. He, he, he creates kind of a, a false, you know, illusion that he is living in her body um, while he stored her body off somewhere else, uh, and continues to live with the family um, so that he can slowly but surely um, take over the the bodies and the. Ho- the keep wanting to say hotel rooms, but the apartment rooms of each of the tenants of this apartment complex um, for whatever his nefarious purposes are. Um, and while this is all going on, the the other child of this family that's moved in, um, they are the Potters, by the way, Is he is Harry Potter Jr. Um, she is Wendy Potter. Um, so Harry Potter Jr., tries to find out what's going on with his, his sister, he can tell that all is not as it should be. Um, and he uh, he ends up befriending a elderly woman who lives in the apartment complex that it turns out is a, uh, a witch who has been tasked with trying to prevent these trolls from taking over the world. Uh, and she sort of conscripts him into her service to help destroy the trolls, uh, which is what, Basically, the third act of the movie is is him trying to to fulfill his portion of this and and kill the trolls and get his sister back.
1: there's an interesting piece of lore here in the sense that the troll that we have in uh, in the film that we know that we see frequently, his name is Torok. Uh, used to be not a human, but was a fairy figure, uh, a knight and wizard, powerful wizard, and Torok. And this elderly woman in her younger years were lovers, or they were a couple. And uh, there was a great war between the fairy people and humans, and the humans prevailed, and Torak was transformed into the troll and exiled. So in order to reclaim his, his true self and to take the world back over in the name of fairydom, he needs to sort of transfigure the humans that are in this apartment building into trolls and elves and fairy figures and transform the, their dwelling into an extension of the fairy world that can then burst forth, almost as she calls it, a fourth dimension mm. that will overtake the planet. Why and,
0: exactly this particular apartment building has to be the epicenter of that is never really explained. Never. Um, yeah, why it couldn't have been... I don't know, like a, a subway sandwich station in Hoboken, New Jersey, instead of an apartment Ma- building, and which
1: is just a magical place.
0: I oh well, yeah, you know, it, we we don't know what the significance of this apartment building was um, per se as as it relates to the film, but for whatever reason, that is where it takes place.
1: And the strengths, I think, in this movie lie in a couple of areas. Right, they lie in the ensemble nature. Of the cast, that we don't really get a whole lot of exposition on who these individual people are, but each tableau, each apartment becomes a tableau of the fantasy genre. You know, like Sonny Bono is this s- single swinger, womanizing. Type, womanizing, yeah, you know, slime. And who lives alone as a bachelor and sort of outwardly professes this 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 image of being this swinger, ladies man, but he's really kind of a slime ball. And he's the first of the tenants to fall victim to the troll. Um, coincidentally, Sonny Bono was only available for th- for two or three days of principal photography, and he had to be replaced by somebody else on the crew. So the point during his transformation. From Sonny Bono into whatever into the pod person thing that he turns into, there's a clear delineation point when you watch the scene where in one shot it appears to be Sonny Bono making an uncomfortable face, and in the next shot you see it seems to be somebody who sort of somewhat resembles Sonny Bono, (laughs) but with a lot of makeup on. It's not Sonny at all, it's a totally different person. But, you know, Julia Louis Dreyfus in this movie in her first in her film debut at 24 years old. From the moment she's on camera, right? She is instantly magnetic. Like you watch in the you she's in the frame and your eye goes to her. I mean, she's quick and she's smart and like her lines are whip fast delivered. And she's just great. It's like, we just sort of win the lottery by casting this young woman. And when she is transformed, she's transformed into this like beautiful woodland nymph who runs through the the forests, like with tendrils of vines just covering her body as she runs through the forest. But this, I mean, these various folks that are in the apartment building: the womanizer, the ingenue actress woman who turns into the woodland nymph is Julia Louis Dreyfus. These sort of last man on earth, ultra conservative gun nut. In the apartment, who he and he gets turned into uh, his own version of a a troll or a little fantasy monster. Like that's where the strength is, and I don't think the strength is very much in probably to the disappointment of the filmmakers in Noah Hathaway, who plays the lead and the sister, uh, or Michael Moriarty, The the core family are not really that strong.
0: No, no. I mean, if anything, they seem like the incredibly boring. People who have moved into this, you know, pretty, um, even before it becomes a, a fantasy world, this pretty f- interesting, eccentric sort of uh, building, you know. Um, there seems to be a lot of uh, sort of life going on in this, this place, you know. I mean, you have a lot of very strange people living interesting uh, lives, um, that are are all sort of gathered together in this one place, and then you have this sort of vanilla cookie-cutter family that just moves in, and yeah, you know, I mean, there, I, I agree. There's nothing particularly interesting about the main family. In fact, as you were talking about that, I was thinking to myself, you know, it probably would have been better to have, uh, although she would have been a little young for the, the role, I guess, at the time, to have instead cast... Uh, Julia Louis-Dreyfus as the mother in this film as opposed to, um, you know, the the ingenue who is only in it for a couple of minutes so that she could have had more screen time and probably would have made for a much more interesting um, film if you would have seen that much more of her in this more substantial role. Um, a really weird use of Michael Moriarty in this film as well. I mean, you know, he, his character is... Um, it's peculiar. I mean, I, I suppose he was meant to sort of be the, um, the bumbling dad figure. but uh, some of the ways that they choose to uh, express that are especially cringeworthy, particularly the portion in the film that I think you heard a little bit of as we were playing the trailer, there's a moment where he plays um, a cover of Eddie Cochran's um, summertime blues and starts dancing to it. And it is every drunk white uncle dancing at a wedding uh, times a hundred. I mean, it's, it's just incredibly, incredibly cringy to watch. And, you know, you kind of feel bad for Michael Moriarty there. Cause I mean, I think he deserves a little bit better than that as an actor. He's, he's, he's above that.
1: So interesting. You bring up this particular scene, And in contrast to some of the things that we were saying about the ensemble and Moriarty, Patrick Goldstein, this is 1986 in the LA Times, Patrick Goldstein from the LA Times said about Troll, in making the transition from special effects whiz to film director, John Buchler may have lavished more attention on his mechanical creations than his cast, who seem at a loss whether to aim for chills or for laughs. The only standout, (laughs) is Moriarty, who has a bravura scene displaying some yuppie soul as he awkwardly gyrates around the living room to blue cheers, summertime blues, mimicking guitar solos and drum rolls, totally oblivious to the goings-on in the rest of his household. It's the kind of goofy rave-up that gives the film a blast of delirious energy sorely missing from the rest of this lunk-headed fantasy.
0: I would tell you that <laughs> soul is nowhere to be found in that particular uh, segment. Neither I, have
1: I ever <laughs> imagined the couplet of those two words, yuppie and soul, right together. Yes, as a good as a good thing, ever at all. But let alone, it's a good thing.
0: No, no, it's. I I I completely disagree with the LA Times on that. <laughs> that is, that, yep. was, that was maybe the low light of the entire film for me
1: and michael moriarty you know listen if if the stuff is any is a is is one comparison and now you have this film i haven't i haven't watched q in a very long time looking at his filmography you know he went from this weird sort of string of films doing q and the stuff and troll and then it's alive and return to salem's lot and he's sort of Known as being this sort of odd, eccentric character, you know, I think that I'm going to go on a limb here, but my reaction to his performance as sort of an abstraction or is, or like sort of an abstract form of performance would not be that dissimilar to some of the weird shit that I would, you would see Nicolas Cage do in preparation for a yeah. role. Um, and it's like, the process or the thought process that goes into how he's doing what he's doing or the way that he would art. Like I've read in articles about him, this sort of cerebral way that he justifies or motivates what he does. Nick cage does comes up with similar, very like to him, very articulate justifications for weird shit that he does. Uh, I just think that maybe as a product of the time and what, films he happened to be working on that, you know, maybe what I'm saying is blasphemous to compare Michael Mariarty to Nicolas Cage. But
0: I, Oh no Nicolas Cage has done some some pretty horrible films at this point uh as well. I mean he's don't get me wrong, you know, I Nicolas Cage has been in some excellent movies that I I, I truly love, but you know, he's also done his version of the Wicker Man and a number right. of other lesser films that he's he's been a part of. Um. Yeah. You know. I mean. Look. I. I understand what they were going for with the scene. Um. It, it's hardly the the focus of the entire movie. I mean. I feel like the the movie is really trying pretty hard to uh, get you wrapped up in this sort of uh, fantasy realm that they they're they're doing their best to create and to craft. Um. And there is some some great. Uh, well maybe great's too strong a word but i think there's some some very admirable uh creature work in this you know i mean the animatronics and that sort of thing the puppetry that they use in this um, i think comes off pretty well and uh, for the most part really honestly doesn't look nearly as um, sort of second rate or schlocky as you might be led to believe um it's you know it's it's well done, and it's it's pretty fun for what it is. Um, there are a couple of moments, especially once they actually get into the the sort of fairy world proper um, later in the film, where there are a couple of scenes where I thought, oh, you know, it's actually this is kind of um, kind of impressive. I mean, you know, in terms of what they were able to accomplish um, from an effect standpoint.
1: Well, I think that you know, Goldstein in the LA Times sort of brings mentions this idea as uh, of Buechler being or Beekler, it's pronounced actually Bichler, uh being a, an effects artist come director, mm-hmm. you know? And the truth is, is that Beekler w- had a, a, a very storied career in special makeup effects. Uh, in fact, a lot of the creatures that we see in Troll are incredibly reminiscent of another film that came out the year earlier, which, uh, uh, we were talking about, which I've seen loads and loads of time called Ghoulies, which uh, I bl- was sort of a follow-on knockoff film of um, Gremlins and uh, Critters. Like the way that Critters was a spinoff send-up of Gremlins, Ghoulies was sort of a supernatural send-up of Gremlins, right? This like little tribe of supernatural Beings, right? Ghouls, basically, who would terrorize a, an amusement park. Um, a lot of the creatures that were in Troll, that were that were featured, visibly were reminiscent of the work that was done in Ghoulies. Um, but he's got a long list of credits, including, uh, Death Stalker, Reanimator, Ghoulies, Troll, From Beyond, which is a. Have you ever seen From Beyond? Is a bizarre Lovecraftian <laughs> nightmare with lots of uh, animatronic effects. Uh, several Nightmare on Elm Street. Some of the several of the later Nightmare on Elm Street sequels. Now you could say there was a point at which Nightmare on Elm Street clear, like Nightmare on Elm Street, the original clearly was a horror movie. Yes, scary, terrifying horror movie. Nightmare on Elm Street two was also scary for other reasons having and and there's a massive deep dive that we could do into Nightmare on Elm Street part 2 um but from that point forward Dream Warriors, the Dream Master, the, Ch- the Dream Child, all of these Nightmare on Elm Street subsequent Nightmare on Elm Street movies were schlock horror with incredibly ambitious and exciting Practical special effects.
0: Yeah, right? yeah, it definitely moves in a different direction,
1: right? But but big grand set pieces of special effects using not miniatures, not matte shots, but like animatronics and practical effects, right? And and Beekler was one of the guys who did a lot of that work. And the handful of and when you compare his effects resume to his directing resume, there is some overlap but there's no question that he is a makeup effects artist who's made some films. Right. And, and, and so that doesn't become much of a surprise that a film like that a movie like troll, um, shines in those areas in ways that, you know, the other things don't. And in fact, similar to uh, to other films that we, in this bundle that we've watched that are all from this period, this sort of mid to low budget eighties, early to mid eighties, uh, fantasy slash horror movies. When you're doing practical matte shots or with uh, where you are, ha- you doing superimposition or green screening. You're not. You might be using. You know, if you're using miniatures, if those miniatures are mixed with full size uh, elements, those shots are really not very particularly successful. Right? There are shots like in the stuff where the factory explodes, where that building is completely miniature. Right. That shot is more impressive than any of the matte shots where you see like the monster and the people, where you can see the outlines of all the people. Right. The thing about Troll is I don't recall, other than this, there, there are two or three shots where they're using... Either stop motion animation to animate these vines coming out of the top oh, of the yeah, building yeah. that
0: did look pretty bad, right? Or like yeah. when
1: Sunny when the Sunny Bono turns into a pod person and these these like vines come out of his pod, like that uses this sort of stop motion effect. Other than those very small handful of shots, and this movie has a lot of effects.
0: Oh yeah, very it's heavy,
1: st- very heavy. The effects that you see are practical and deal with forced perspective to 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 alter size, the size of a character by through camera positioning and forced perspective of where the characters are blocked and a lot of puppets and animatronics and there's a tangibility to that stuff that is easier to sell than something that, you know, is is a wholesale fake.
0: Well, you know, and this is one of those movies that I feel like to a certain extent Gets a bit of a bad rap that isn't entirely deserved. I mean, I have seen interviews with Julia Louis Dreyfus on um, late night talk shows, that sort of thing, where people will bring up uh, her role in Troll or show, you know, part of the the fairy nymph sequence that you're talking about, and ask her to comment on it. And you can always sort of tell that she is uh, perturbed and you know irritated by the reminder that she was in this movie and it's you know it's always treated as if uh, you were in this incredibly low budget um, horrible little movie and and how silly and how sad for you but you know I don't really think that looking back at it and watching it in its entirety that it's it it's nearly as deserving of that kind of um, stain I mean it's it's not the best movie ever made, not by any stretch, but I mean, this is a perfectly competent little, you know, fantasy horror film for its time, for what it was trying to do. Um, and given all the, you know, as we talked about the complications between what the director wanted and the studio wanted um, at the time, I mean, I, I think that it probably gets a worse rap than is really, um, is really deserved. And, you know, to that point, let's talk a little bit about money here. Um, the budget for this movie was $1.1 million, and I have to say, you know, given that budget and what they were able to accomplish, pretty impressive. Um, the domestic opening box office for the movie in 1986 was $2.5 million, and it had a overall U.S. gross of $5.4 million, with a worldwide cumulative gross of uh, just about the same. Um, so I mean, you know, five point four million dollars on a one point one million dollar picture in '86. That's that's a that's a damn good return. Mm-hmm.
1: And also, to, to, just to backpedal a second about Julia Louis Dreyfus, who I think is is great. You know, I in, overall in terms of as as in a, as a career and as a comedian and a comic actress and a serious actress, I think she's great. But in 1986. Julia Louis-Dreyfus was in three films. She was in Troll, she was in Hannah and Her Sisters, and Soul Man. Okay, so uh, yes, it's true that Hannah and Her Sisters uh, was a $6 million film that made $40 million at the box office and won the Academy Awards, for Best Original Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress, also directed by Woody Allen.
0: Yep. yep. All
1: right? Soul Man a film in which C. Thomas Howell plays a white man in blackface (laughs) in order to get into college. Right. And Troll. Yeah. i pick Troll.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'd say that Soul Man is the the worst of the films out of that category.
1: Especially because her ability to be in that film and be as magnetic as she is, right? I think that her character in Soul Man probably got her her reading and her callback to do Christmas vacation, the character she played in Christmas vacation, very similar to the character she played in soul man. Yeah. Right. And all of that light leads to getting hired to be on Seinfeld in 1989. Right. The year that she's in Christmas vacation is the year she's cast as Elaine Sw- uh, as Elaine uh, Dennis in uh, Seinfeld. So again, this whole idea about, and I, you know, pod, the podcast and what I think about when I'm thinking about film and about what the difference between a film and a movie and, uh, you know, is something trash and therefore has no value. Going to Italy in 1986 to shoot this little movie launches a, like, makes makes the bones that launches a career like you don't get the next gig if you do if you don't do this shitty gig and similar to like jennifer aniston being in leprechaun right jennifer aniston was her first movie she was in a oh, she really really bad horror movie called leprechaun sure but she was a lead in leprechaun it yeah. was a bad movie and she's embarrassed by that movie i think it's silly to be embarrassed she got a job
0: well yeah and i mean look um you know, horror is often the genre of film that a lot of actors start out in, right? Um, we oftentimes see actors get their first breaks in the horror genre and then move on to other things. It's it's not uncommon. Um, I think something similar happened for Matthew McConaughey, and, um, uh, you know, there are a number of other actors who have if not had it be their very first role, I mean, it's been one of the first roles that they did. Kevin Bacon. Yeah. Kevin Bacon, Chris Hemsworth. Chris
1: Hemsworth, *Cabin in the Woods.
0: Yep. Um, You know, I mean, these, this is a very common thing. It's almost just like, uh, uh, Steven Dorff in the gate. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost ritualistic. You know, this is just part of what you do, um, to kind of get your foot in the door, um, in Hollywood. And, you know, I mean, look, uh, Something like Leprechaun, which I, I imagine one day we are going to do an entire episode on Leprechaun, because
1: <laughs> you want to do Leprechaun in the Hood.
0: I want to do all the Leprechaun films. I want to just do nothing <laughs> but the Leprechaun movies. Could we do They're them as like, one episode? There's, there's like eight of them.
1: Oh, never mind. Um, <laughs>
0: that be a long episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, I think that there, there is something to be said for a film series that becomes that long-standing, right? I mean, um. We could say the same thing, same thing about, you know, the the original Hellraiser is a really interesting movie, but seven or eight Hellraisers in, is it really still at the same level or, mm, you no. know, Halloween <laughs> or um, Friday the 13th or what have you? Um, e, when you make a thousand sequels to something, you're going to have some really bad ones in there. Um, or in the case of Jaws, when you make any sequels, you're going to have some bad ones in there. I'm going to
1: uh, go, I'm going to, I'm listening. I'm gonna say something unpopular about about Jaws, right? Jaws one, Jaws two. Jaws two is good. Was a good good movie. It wasn't a bad movie. Um, Jaws three. Dennis Quaid, right? That's mm-hmm. the one. Lou Gossett Jr. A little bit, you know, not as good. A little bit, you know, we're in Sea World. It wasn't as good. I liked the Michael Caine Jaws for the Revenge. I liked it. It was totally implausible. Didn't make any sense. I just I I'm, I'm a Michael Caine guy.
0: Hey, listen, I I love Michael Caine as much as the what next did Michael guy. What did wrong. Michael
1: Caine say about what does Michael Caine say about whether or not to choose whether or not you're going to do a film, right? You look at the script. You read the first page of the script. You read the last page of the script. If your character is alive on the last page of the script. <laughs> You do the picture, because that's what a, that's what a working that's what I'm a, a working man who's working as an actor does. You read the first page, you read the last page. If my character is <laughs> alive in the last page. I'm doing the picture.
0: <laughs> well, you know, there are some movies where people have died uh, early on. I thought they they were still great in them. Um, speaking of the first uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, for that matter, you know, I mean Johnny Depp's good in that movie, and he he dies pretty early in it.
1: That's a good, a good example of. Uh, early career uh, use of the horror genre, right? Johnny Depp yep. also in, in Platoon, uh, but not memorable as he's sort of one of the many in Platoon. Right. But,
0: but Johnny, you don't forget a guy who gets sucked down it, into his own bed and has his blood spilled all over the room. Right. Which, by the way... Especially I'm somebody
1: th- as dreamy as Johnny Depp in Nightmare on Elm Street.
0: Because those were 21 Jump Street days, <laughs> right, baby. Right, right, Um, Speaking of which... I forgot to mention this in the episode we did on the stuff, but the the hotel room they used in the stuff is the same uh, set they used for the bedroom in Nightmare on Elm Street. It's the exact same room because they had to use the same flipping mechanism to get the stuff to climb up the wall that they did to get the blood to it up.
1: Oh, I didn't... Oh, wait. I I was mixed up. So you're saying there was two scenes in Nightmare on Elm Street because there was a scene when, when Johnny Depp's bed sort of sprays the blood yeah and then there's also the scene earlier in the film where nancy's friend the first victim is killed yeah and she's up on the wall and the ceiling and being slashed over the bed yeah and that was when you were talking about it just now that was the scene that i was envisioning i remember when we watched the stuff i was thinking about that scene popped into my head and i was and i it i had imagined that it was probably it was the same technique yeah but but it's the exact same room actually the exact same set yeah, yeah. Because oh,
0: they, they, they already had it set up to do the, rotation, you know, that, the rotating that, that, that the gimmick. Camera. Yeah. Yeah. They had the gimmick already set up, so they figured we'll just redress the set. Right on. Um, you know, so yeah, a little bit of nightmare on Elm Street and the stuff for you. Uh, which has nothing to do with troll, which is what we're supposed to be talking about. So my bad. Um, but yeah, you know, we we've we've really been I have to stop us for a moment here because I feel like we have really been um dancing around the elephant in the room here and the elephant in the room is that this movie comes out 11 fucking years before the Harry Potter series and of books the uh, books um, by JK Rowling. And it's got a whole family of potters in it who are also sucked into this magical realm um with a, a little kid named Harry Potter, grant you Harry Potter Jr., not Harry Potter Sr., but still, um, I mean, it's it's tough for me to believe that a young JK might not have seen this movie and said to herself, that seems like an alright idea. I think I could roll with that and come up with some new pieces to it and make myself an empire.
1: I don't. Know. I mean, do you do you imagine that you're making an empire when you're writing the book?
0: I don't think she imagined that it would become what it was. No, but I mean, I think she definitely looked at this as there was. I think there's definitely some inspiration that was gained from this movie for the Harry Potter right. series. Not not simply the the name of the main character, but also, you know, sort of uh, pulling on this this string to a certain degree and then extrapolating it out to its, its most, you know, uh, fantastical ends um, in terms of what she was able to do with the, the fantasy element of it and, and this realm of, I mean, we, this is something we and I were, 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 we were discussing a little bit when we were watching the movie, right? I mean, how far away really is um, the world of something like Hogwarts and the witches and wizards and so forth that populate that space? And, you know, a, a apartment building in San Francisco that happens to also be the doorway to a magical realm filled with fairies and trolls and unicorns and, and other things.
1: I mean, I think, that you know, it goes... I mean, we, would, we should first say that this issue or this story has sort of popped up several times over the years. I mean, obviously, when it was first, you know, envisioned or when it first sort of came out, uh, they, there was this implication or the suggestion that JK Rowling had lifted or cribbed some of this lore to influence the creation of the Harry Potter series to which JK Rowling has obviously rejected. There has been discussion about there being a lawsuit against JK Rowling, um, because of this. You know, all that notwithstanding, I think that you know, the folks who made troll have something to say about this. You know, I mean, this is something that they had they had created, that troll was created. It was originally going to be a horror movie, but it it changed. And it very specifically became a story about a fantasy world inhabited by wizards and fairies and trolls that exists in parallel to the regular world where humans live and that the border between those two worlds is fragile and that a boy would be given the task of defeating a powerful wizard to protect the balance between this this fragile binding between these two worlds and that boy is named Harry Potter yeah
0: yeah I mean look I I don't <laughs> uh, I don't have any doubt that JK Rowling would say you know this was all bunk and that she didn't take any inspiration from it I imagine she would say she never saw this film she was unaware of its existence I mean. But there are so many similarities here. It it just feels a little incredulous, right, To to look at it all and say that these two things somehow managed to exist in the world without either one having known about the other's existence. I mean, obviously, the people who were making Troll had no idea that, you know, this huge book and film franchise and you know, uh, uh, amusement park ride world would, would spring forth from this name that they plucked out of the air. But, uh, I think that JK has, has shown that she is far from uh, infallible over the last several years. And, and, I mean, I'm just saying, I, I I don't know that I would put her on a pedestal so high that I would say it's impossible for this to be true.
1: So Charles Band, let me see if I can find this. Charles Band, who is one of the producers of this at Empire Films, I believe is the production company.
0: Yeah, I think that's what we said.
1: Um, or was that the Hold stuff? Hold on. Uh,
0: no, Empire Pictures is...
1: Empire Pictures. So I have an article here uh, with Charles Band from Empire Pictures who's asked... It's bizarre, isn't it? You have a young boy named Harry Potter who discovers that he has magical powers and uses them to fight a troll. And Charles Band says to quote, I've heard that J.K. Rowling has acknowledged that maybe she saw this low-budget movie and perhaps it inspired her. Who knows what the story is? Life's too short for a fight as far as I'm concerned. But having said that, there are many scenes in that movie, not to mention the name of the main character. And this, of course, predates the Harry Potter books by many, many years, so there's that strange connection.
0: Well, uh, I mean, I suppose good for him and all for being willing to be the bigger person and whatnot. But, uh, I mean, life might be too short for fighting. But when there are billions of dollars on the line, I think at some point you say to yourself, maybe I ball up my fist and <laughs> find out what I'm made of. Um, so
1: in another another column here from 2008... Um, Buechler's, uh producing partner, Peter Davies, said, quote, in John's opinion, meaning John Beekler who directed Troll, he created the first Harry Potter. J.K. Rowling says the idea just came to her. John doesn't think so. There are a lot of similarities between the theme of her books and the original Troll. John was shocked when she came out with Harry Potter,
0: unquote. Yeah, I would say that, you know, there might be enough there for a... um for a lawsuit. I don't know that he would win, but I think he would probably win out of court. I mean, I I could see a settlement. Yeah, I could definitely see a settlement. I mean, uh, I would think at this point there's enough money on the line and enough people that have a vested interest that, uh, probably throw you, you know, several million dollars just to shut up and go away.
1: You know, I, I think it's, I mean, tragically, uh, John Beekler uh, passed away in 2019, uh, from uh, prostate cancer uh, He was diagnosed, uh, with stage, diagnosed With stage 4 prostate cancer He died oh. shortly after that um, You know a movie like Troll Which for 1986 as we were saying Had what was like A legitimate box office Like it did okay at the box office It mm-hmm. was not a failure um, And yet Troll If you could imagine A, a remaking of troll, but that troll as a story existed inside of the universe of Harry Potter inside of, inside of Rowling's universe of Harry Potter. That's is a story that could fit in that universe.
0: Yeah. It would make a lot of sense, make a lot of sense
1: to exist inside of that universe. Yeah, Yeah. And, but, and yet you had this film, which was a box office, moderate box office success, modest box office success for what it was. Um, followed by sequels that bear no resemblance or relation whatsoever to this film. Troll 2, Troll 3, w- which are standalone films which have nothing to do with this. And tr- in many respects, a film movie like Troll 2 has completely overshadowed this movie. oh yeah, as, I mean there's... as being the worst movie ever made.
0: Yeah, which I also don't believe, but, um, I mean, Troll 2 has an entire documentary that was made, you know, uh, about it, because the the lore surrounding it is so, um, so robust, um, and so, yeah, I I think most people, when they think of Troll, are probably thinking of Troll 2, whether they realize it initially or not, um, whereas, yeah, you know, this, this first, uh, movie back in 86 that was actually trying to be a little bit more um, serious seems like the wrong word but sincere maybe a little bit more sincere in the way that it was portraying things gets lost in the shuffle movie was also only made in five weeks by the way which that was this this movie this movie was made in five weeks which I think is pretty five impressive. Weeks.
1: Well, I mean, if you think about it, the entire movie was shot on a, ste- on a set in Italy. Yeah. And so if you really think about the size and scope of this movie, you've got one soundstage or whether one location of shooting with five or six setups in the apartments, right? Very, very few exteriors the in fact the only time we see exteriors is the exterior of the building across the street and in the fantasy forest.
0: Yeah, we see one shot of the Golden Gate Bridge. Like in the it's a, a background piece, mm. but you can see that it's there to establish firmly That's San Francisco. That's San Francisco and he's got um the the main character Harry Potter Jr. in his room. He's got uh, uh two pennants on either side of his bed. One is the 49ers, and the other is the San Francisco Giants. He also has, a, and this bothered me throughout the entire film, it's a little point, but it just bothered the hell out of me. Right above the Giants pennant, there is a, uh, it looks like a sticker or something, but it, it's got a football helmet that's indistinguishable, but it says Dallas right next to it, and I always just thought, like, it's really just, it bugs me that, you know, you're you're casting your loyalties both to the Niners and I mean, presumably this is the, the Cowboys, although if it's the Cowboys, why didn't we just use an actual Cowboys piece? You you obviously used real teams, so this isn't a licensing issue. Um, but, yeah, you know, it was, just, it was one of those little things that just really bothered me. Maybe um, they just
1: couldn't get the release, or maybe they didn't, You don't know. Maybe they couldn't source it.
0: I don't know. I don't know. Um, but there were a couple of things like that, you know, um, and, and Julia louis Dreyfus's uh, boyfriend in this movie, Brad Hall, uh, is wearing a, a Chicago Cubs t-shirt right. in one of the scenes. And again, I thought to myself, but we're in San Francisco, right? I mean, like, why are we wearing a Cubs t-shirt?
1: Well, isn't, um, did, did Julia Louis-Dreyfus, was she in Second City?
0: I think she was, yeah. So, and, and so I'm sure he probably just, like, uh, he, I'm sure it was like, you know, wear nod, what you right? have. yeah, right, yeah, right, right, yeah,
1: yeah. right. I mean, she was in Second City. Brad Hall uh, is, uh, Brad Hall, her boyfriend in the movie is Julia Louis Dreyfus's husband in yeah. real in real life? I, you know, I think you know maybe the wearing of the Cubs shirt was kind of a nod to Second City.
0: Probably so. Probably so. And I'm I'm sure this is the kind of movie where they told. A lot of people, you know, as much as possible, you're just going to wear... You're going to bring your own wardrobe with you and right. wear what you, you own. You,
1: right. If you're not wearing vines... Right, yeah. You In, wear your own clothes.
0: Unless you were the, the witch character who's got to wear something that looks vaguely fantastical throughout the entire film. Um, yeah, you know, we just your, your regular old t-shirts and, and whatnot will be fine. You know, before
1: um, we go to... Um, before we move too far and we go to um, staff picks, I do Mm. want to mention one thing that happened in this movie that threw me for a loop, right? Which, but I also found was kind of a little stroke of genius, which is our, our witch who is, uh, lives in the Mm. building that was played by June Lockhart uh, was in sort of is plays this sort of like dowdy, I mean, dare I say, um, Professor McGonagall type character, right? I mean, there's a very cl- similar, there's a very clear similarity.
0: May I direct the jury's attention to Exhibit right, C five? Right,
1: right, right. I mean, am I right? I didn't hmm. even think about that until this moment. But yeah. Eunice St. Clair, the character in Troll, bears a striking resemblance to yeah. M- Professor McGonagall from Harry Potter, mm. and in her, even just her dress and the way that she looks the whole mise-en-scene around who she is and the air that she gives us really really similar weird yeah. uh sure it's complete it's total co- it's absolute coincidence um but even
0: has a little talking uh mushroom you know right. which Almost i mean like a mandrake that you yes, pull out of a pot ah. just, ah,
1: there's nothing there's no connection
0: <laughs> Anyway, I want, I, I I really want a lawsuit settlement for these people for them, you know. Like I no, just, and you uh, want to know uh,
1: what? Like, John Beekler, listen, I don't know what the situation was. I do know that John Beekler's widow, prior to his death, created a GoFundMe page to help assist for paying for treatments mm. for Beekler's uh, cancer treatment. Uh, because he was trying to undergo all manner of treatment in order to treat his cancer, uh, and ultimately perished in 2019. It would be a bummer to find out that that GoFundMe was. First of all, it's a bummer that that has to exist, right? Anyway, but America, all right, that's a different podcast. Um, but the idea that there may have been a just, there may be out there a justifiable cash settlement, and you know. John Beekler could have used that money when he was alive. Uh, that's a real that's a real shame and tragedy. Yeah. But I digress. My point about uh, June Lockhart as Eunice Sinclair. So we meet this character, and there's a point at which Eunice Sinclair is sort of transfigured into a younger version of herself. And again, transfiguration. There's another mm. Harry Potter yep. thing. Yep. Right? She's sort of transfigured into a younger version of herself where she turns around... And then pulls a bun out of her hair, and her hair goes from being very gray, and when it falls around her shoulders, her hair is clearly blonde, and she appears to be a much younger version of herself. And my immediate reaction was like, wow, that was an amazing makeup job they did. Thinking that she had been wearing aged, aging makeup the whole first three quarters of the film, and then now this is her younger self, and I was like, wow. That was impressive.
0: But they did something even more creative than that.
1: Right. And what they did was they dual cast June Lockhart's daughter, Anne Lockhart, as a younger version of her of her. And coincidentally, Anne Lockhart kind of a spitting image of mm. her mom. Yeah. And that moment was blurred so well that it's like it was really, really well done. And it took me like a moment where I was thinking to myself, is this even the same person? She's like walking around with a spear and like stabbing at trolls and swinging swords. Like wasn't this an older lady? And I had to go to Wikipedia and check the cast list. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I did that while we were watching the movie that I realized, huh, it was two different people. Right, right. I thought that was pretty impressive.
0: Yeah, no, I mean it was a it was an excellent idea. Um and something that, you know, was was so simple and yet had such a, a a nice effect to it.
1: You know what I think was really skillful about it is that they didn't make a big deal out of it. Right. They were not saying to the audience, look over here and look at this thing that we're doing, look at this gag. Mm. Right. And they had done it in such a way that it was I mean, I, it just, I didn't even, I wouldn't even have known.
0: Yeah. The prestige was really well done. With yeah. It. yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I thought that was a, a really great low budget way to achieve the effect they were looking for. I mean, it, it, it worked really well, you know, I'm, if I'm. Colin Hanks, I'm putting that in the back of my pocket and saying, hey, Dad, next time you're casting a movie, if they need a younger version of you, I'm just saying.
1: <laughs> you have to do his, have to get his the dad's mannerisms down. Yeah. Of yeah. any of the Hanks children. I think Colin's the, best, Colin's the most likely.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, Colin, I think Colin's the... Colin, of all the Hanks children, I think he has the the most robust acting career. Um, you know, he had some time on Mad Men and... Um, Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers and... Uh, what was the name of the... Um, show he was on on the CW, um, Roswell. He was on Roswell. Um, man, that didn't really bother me. That's that high, that high on the top of my memory. Um, but that's a story for another time. Um, anywho, let's get to some staff recommendations. I will go first this time around. And, um, you know, we talked briefly here about Jennifer Aniston and her role in, um, uh, Leprechaun and the uh, the sort of parallels that exist for that between that movie and this one with Julia Louis Dreyfus. I want to talk in this case about another uh, Jennifer Aniston film that I actually really enjoy, um, and that is 1999's The Iron Giant, um, a fantastic little animated film that I don't think gets nearly the love or attention it deserves. Um, it is a uh, have kind of uh, 1950s Red Scare era um, uh, animated film, which has a, uh, a giant robot that uh, befriends a young American boy. Um, and it's about the kind of coming of age story between him and this robot and how the robot helps him figure out some things about himself and, and how to survive in the world and, and make a place for himself. And the robot is played uh, by Vin Diesel in one of the best non Groot Vin Diesel movies.
1: Very few lines. Very few lines. Similar, for... but it's actually in that in some ways very similar.
0: Yeah, yeah. To, yeah. to Groot. You... Yeah, but I mean, this is uh, you know, this is uh, actually a really good good role for um, for Diesel, and um, and one of my favorite animated films. It's it's just um, if you watched any of the old. Um, uh, 1940s, 1950s uh, Superman uh, sort of serial cartoons that they did um, in that old animation style. I feel like the animation style for the Iron Giant is very similar to that that set of uh, short animated features.
1: That's a great pick. So I've been torn, right? I mean, I, I, up until this point, I was really thinking that my staff pick was going to be Troll 2. <laughs> Because, you know, it's touted as being the best worst movie ever made. And it doesn't have any trolls in it. Uh, It doesn't have any goblins in it. Yet it was supposed to be called Goblins. I don't know what the movie is. Um, But the truth is, I don't really want to subject the listener to watching Troll 2. Although I would say um, it is a movie I think that everybody should see, at least the bad parts of it. So I would suggest you go to YouTube and look at clips. Of Troll 2, so you can see how bad it actually could be. So my pick this week is going to be uh, one that is based upon uh, one of the one of the actors in uh, in our movie this week, Troll. Uh, our lead, our lead uh, protagonist in this film, was played by a young man by the name of Noah Hathaway, who got this role because he was seen by the director in uh, another film a few years earlier. Uh, in in his performance was so impressive to John Beekler that he had to cast him as the lead in his movie Troll, and that is the 1984 fantasy film directed by Wolfgang Peterson, The Neverending Story, which uh, I have to th- I have to think is, you know, on a very short list of like seminal films of my childhood, uh, and probably watch the hell out of it. So if you've never seen The Neverending Story
0: or read the book. I have never read the book. Oh, the book is good. You should read the book. I should read the book.
1: I feel like a fool <laughs> not having read the book.
0: Well, my job on this podcast is done. We'll see you all next week. Uh... Larry's job is to make
1: James feel like a fool.
0: <laughs> I just come in and ruin people's days.
1: Mission accomplished. You thank, should... you, thank you very much for listening to the JNL video podcast.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. I too have. I've watched the movie as well, and the movie is is quite excellent. It's, it's a lot of fun. I will I will say one of my one of my longstanding jokes that I, I often make with uh, friends of mine who were really into film was that I I for a long time refused to see the Neverending Story because I was so disappointed that they would call a movie that and then make it an hour and a half long.
1: <laughs> Jesus. Oh God. Any final thoughts on troll or this is actually our, this is our fourth film in our 1980s horror fantasy trash bucket. Do you have any, do you have any idea of what we're going to do next?
0: You know, I don't know. I was, I was just sitting here thinking as we were doing this episode, we got, we got about to the middle of this episode and I realized, oh shit, we have to do the tease for the next episode. And, uh, we're pretty much done with like the schlock horror thing. Well, yeah, because we sort of bound I,
1: ourselves to only doing four, right. so now we have to figure out what the next little bundle is going to be.
0: Right. And I, I, I was thinking, I don't know what the next set of of films are going to be. We we've, we've got a whole working document on Google Docs that's got tons of um, you know, like subgenres in it that right. we've discussed, but I don't think we. Thought to go in and uh pick one of those before we did this so
1: we should just make it a surprise we'll yeah. just start on we'll start on, it's like a new season
0: yeah 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 exactly this i guess it'll you'll you'll be as surprised as we are when you're tuned in next time because right we don't know what the f- we're doing <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i will say at this point to thank everybody for listening to the jnl video podcast we hope that uh these last few episodes have been uh a pleasure for you to listen to. It's been, hopefully it's been at least half as fun for you as it's been for us for, to talk about these movies. It's been great to hang out with my good friend, Lowry. My name is James Machado. This is the JNL Video Podcast, and uh, we'll, we'll, you'll hear from us next time.
0: Yeah, I mean, who knows what other ways I can find to Ruined make James feel <laughs> terrible about himself. <laughs> you'll only know if you keep tuning in.